Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the Movement and Mobility series hosted by the New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. The Mobilities and Methods Lab New Books Network Partnership provides a platform for authors, readers, and their interlocutors to engage closely with questions of movement and mobility. My name is Benjamin Linder. I'm a research fellow at the International Institute for Asian Studies at Leiden University in the Netherlands. Today, I'm pleased to be joined by Dr. Tim Cresswell. Dr. Cresswell is the Ogilvy Professor of Geography at the University of Edinburgh. He has authored and edited many books on diverse topics in addition to his numerous articles. In particular, his contributions to theories of place, mobilities, and geohumanities have rendered him a leading thinker in contemporary human geography. Beyond his scholarly research, he has also published three collections of poetry that engage deeply with a geographical perspective. Today, we will be discussing Dr. Cresswell's book, Maxwell Street, Writing and Thinking Place, published in 2019 by the University of Chicago Press. The book charts the historical transformations of Chicago's iconic Maxwell Street, from its first appearance on city maps in 1847 to its contemporary reinvention as the gentrified University Village of the University of Illinois at Chicago. Drawing on over a decade of research, Cresswell describes the waves of migration, urban change, and spatial politics that made and continue to make Maxwell Street such a dynamic place, once home to a thriving market, all manner of colorful characters, and one of the city's most vibrant intercultural hubs. Piecing together a disjointed archive of reportage, photographs, objects, lists, creative writing, maps, and more, the book asks how particular places gather and diffuse diverse imaginaries, experiences, and narratives. Using a variety of innovative techniques to tell this story, the book ultimately shows how the neighborhood was and remains an assemblage of shifting, contested relations. As someone who spent a lot of time in the area over the past 10 years, I'm looking forward to the discussion. Tim, welcome, and thank you for joining me on the New Books Network. Thank you for having me. Looking forward to it. So to begin, how would you broadly introduce Maxwell Street to listeners who might not be familiar with it? Uh, You mean the place or the book? Uh, Well, let's say the place first. So um, Maxwell Street, uh, as an actual street and the area around it, was the site of um, what for a long time in the 20th century was uh, North America's largest open-air market. And it was a market that started with Jewish peddlers in the 19th century, um, was formalized as a city market at the beginning of the, of the uh, 20th century, and over time changed from a largely uh, Jewish um, street peddler market to an African-American uh, market and uh, eventually uh, Hispanic um Latinx market that um, uh, was eventually closed as the University of Illinois at Chicago uh, expanded and went into real estate development, amongst other things. Um, and well, 
uh, it, it moved the market away from Maxwell Street to Street, and there is still a Maxwell Street market, but it's a way away now. It's four or five blocks away and uh, across the Dan Ryan Expressway. So um, it's uh, it has the name Maxwell Street, but it's not on Maxwell Street. Um, so so it was very large, open air, uh, mostly obviously weekend activity, but there was constant activity all the time uh, while it was a market, while it was while it was the site of the market. Uh, shops down the side of the streets that would sell things, often tailors' shops and food shops. Most famously, perhaps Nate's Deli, which was a delicatessen that featured in the Blues Brothers movie. Um, and, but on the weekend in particular, these stalls would appear on the street, uh, um, on in the sides of the street, uh, selling you know, the things you get in a flea market, ranging from you know um, gardeners' gloves and um, parts for your car to uh, um, the famous Maxwell Street sausages, um, uh, Jewish food items of one kind or another, uh, just about anything really. Uh, it was a it was a very haphazard um, kind of place uh, that um, the city of Chicago tried over many years to regulate, but never really did properly, and not not, not successfully. Thankfully, eventually they closed it, of course. So it's not there anymore. Yeah, that's great. And I hope we can dive a little deeper into some of those things you just mentioned, because it is a really fascinating history. But first, um, how did you come to write this book? What initially piqued your interest in the place of Maxwell Street? So um, I was, I did my PhD in the University of Wisconsin in Madison. So Chicago was my big city experience um, as a PhD student and traveling down to the jazz festival and things like that when I was doing my PhD. Many years ago, Chicago became the city that I, or the American city that I knew uh, pretty well and kept going back there for one reason or another. Um, in the latter part of the 1990s, I spent a lot of time there because I was researching tramps and hobos in American history and I was a fellow at the Newbury Library. And um, so, again, my knowledge of Chicago grew. I mean, I actually I lived there for a while doing research because I had a fellowship, which was great. And um, and I, one of the books that I read in this period when I was sort of interested in Chicago's history was a book called Chicago's Perfect Cities. Um, and it was about the attempted creation of um, utopias or urban utopias in Chicago, places like Pullman, uh, the model city from the railway company, um, the, and the white city, of course, in, in the Chicago World's Fair, where they tried to produce an ideal ordered version the urban and because I had a long-standing interest in disorder going back to my PhD and and the work on tramps and hobos I thought it would be really interesting to write a kind of uh, other side of that book a kind of Chicago's imperfect cities or Chicago's originally the word I used was promiscuous places um, places that were disordered or apparently disordered at least because it's not really disorder and um, places that were um you know, interesting for the kind of mixture that would happen in them. And so I started on this project to do four or five case studies. There were going to be a lot, lot of different cases, just like Chicago's perfect cities. There were going to be a number of case studies of sites in Chicago that, that I was interested in. I still am, actually. There's a few other places I'm interested in. Um, but I started on Maxwell Street because my father-in-law um, used to live in Evanston, or in the, at least in the suburbs of Chicago. And he would talk to me about this project and talked about going down to Maxwell Street and uh, having suits made for him. His parents would take him down there. And it was the one place, he said, where he would meet people unlike himself. 
um, people from different um, uh, ethnic backgrounds, different class backgrounds, basically every kind of background. And was really fascinated by it. And at the same time, I remembered um, when I lived in Madison, there was a, there still is actually a daily, uh, a yearly event called Maxwell Street Days. That was um, a time when all the state street uh, shops would put stalls out on the street and have a, a sale. Um, so there was a kind of bell that rang and I started looking into it. And as often happens with me, I look into one thing and the rest kind of disappears. And it's so interesting in and of itself that um, I never got around to the other case studies and um, and got into the, the archives of Maxwell Street, particularly when I found people who had worked to try and save it from, from um, removal and, and erasure. Yeah. Um, early on in the book, you note that this is actually your first book about a particular place. And of course, readers who are familiar with you will know that you've written a whole lot about place as a concept, as an idea, as a theory or a theoretical framework. But what motivated you to undertake a more local specific object of study now? Well, you know, I think there's a long-standing um, tension in my discipline in geography, but I think it's probably true in anthropology and a number of other disciplines that straddle the humanities and social sciences. Um, a tension between the, the, the focus on the particular, uh, where you can say in depth something about something. So, you know, you look at um, the concept of deep mapping that comes out of anthropology. It's Clifford Gitts, I think, right? And, um, uh, you know, there's that sense of really getting into somewhere. And I was inspired by a number of books in, um, you know, in, in creative nonfiction type worlds like uh, William Lee's Teat Moon's Prairie Earth, where it explores one square mile of Kansas in a, like a thousand page book. Um, and, and there was this tradition in geography um, in the 19th, you know, early part of the 20th century at its strongest, which was region, what were called regional monographs that were attempts to know a place. And really they were um, you know, it was, they were kind of books that started with the geology and then, you know, the soil type and then the kind of agricultural products that could be made there. And eventually at the end of the book, you get something like religious beliefs or less material things. And, um, you know, they, they, they could be well written and sometimes they were, but most often they weren't. And geography challenged this um, by geographers um, deciding that this wasn't really making geography a sexy science. So what they wanted to do was have generalizations, and that meant um, work across space on patterns of things rather than on a particular place. So, so the tradition of writing about a particular place died, well, not completely, because nothing ever dies that completely. There was always people doing it. Um, until recently, when people who have been inspired by um, possibly you know, the, the environmental humanities, geo-humanities, um, humanities in general, and people outside of academia who've been writing in-depth, wonderfully in-depth um, accounts of particular places. Let's go back to this. Let's go back to this idea of looking at one place and saying a lot about it rather than in relation to other places and, and do it with all the kind of theoretical and conceptual baggage that we've learned since the 1950s. So that we're not doing it like they did it, but thinking about it in relation to, you know, uh, all of all, all of the amazing work that's been happening since then across the humanities and social sciences on on spatial matters. And I thought yeah, that's a great thing to do. That, that combined with you know my interest in in writing creatively, uh, just seemed to work together really well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and Maxwell Street is kind of an ideal candidate to intervene in that that lineage. 
The book, as you've presented it, is divided into three parts, and each of these contains kind of a collage of shorter sections exploring all sorts of different topics and perspectives on Maxwell Street. The second part of the book, which is by far the longest and most empirical portion of the book, is called Marketplace. Um, And you begin by noting those waves of immigration that produced Maxwell Street, leading to some of it, leading some to refer to it as, quote, the Ellis Island of the Midwest. You mentioned a little bit of this in your first answer, but um, who were some of these early groups to settle in the area from across the Atlantic? Um, So the very earliest groups, actually, the very earliest groups were probably Irish, because um, when Maxwell Street first appeared as a kind of mud road with some raised sidewalks, um, it was being the railways were being made by Irish immigrants. Um, There wasn't, we don't know, or at least I don't know that there was a market then, but the the first inhabitants of the street that was called Maxwell Street were probably Irish, or predominantly Irish. Um, The market became most well known, um, well, when the market emerged, it was really Jewish immigrants from mostly Eastern Europe who were um, arriving. It It was a very traditional urban process of this was a poor, crowded part of town on the edge of the edge of the loop, so at the edge of the Chicago's downtown, um, who were moving into the uh, the places that they could afford, uh, crammed into to to homes that weren't really that fit to live in. Uh, it was a very traditional story of American, particularly American urban process. So there were immigrant groups coming from the poorer parts of Europe uh, into um, into Chicago. Um, over so that would say the Jewish the Jewish presence was really you know, strongly there around 1880. Um, you know, the, the railways were being built several decades before that. Um, so um, so the Jewish immigrants were there around the 1880s and up into the beginning of the 20th century, there was strongly East European Jewish uh, community. Um, the, the Great Migration from the South of um, African-Americans was the kind of next big wave. I mean, really, there were people from everywhere in Europe. But by the time you get to about the 1920s, 1930s, uh, there were people from all over Europe. I mean, there was amazing descriptions in um, one of the books I looked at, um, Willard Motley's novels uh, of all the different places you could travel through if you walked around Maxwell Street, um, because there were Ukrainians and Russians and Italians and just about, you know, from all over Europe. Um, but African-Americans started to move up and particularly yeah, before World War II, but particularly after World War II, um, it became a very black uh, African-American population. Again, a very traditional process for northern uh, large cities in, in the US. Um, for the same reasons, it was affordable uh, um, place to live, um, wasn't high rent. Um, and, and as with the Jewish populations and the, the, the Eastern European populations, uh, there was a way. There are ways of making money in, in informal economies, including the market. Um, the other interesting thing, of course, is that the well, one of the one of the many interesting things is that African American people moving up in the Great Migration from the South, up basically up the Mississippi, were um, importing Delta Blues uh, into Chicago, and that's when it became electric, and they plugged in uh, at the the generators that the street merchants used to, to keep things warm or cold. And, um, and they could plug in and, and project music uh, outside, which needed amplification. And that was the move, at least many people credit that as being the move from the Delta Blues, which was acoustic, to the Electric Blues, which was, um, which was um, the Chicago Blues. 
And then probably towards the end of the, so the market um, came to its end in the 1990s. And towards the end of that, uh, it became a very um, uh, Hispanic, uh, Latinx place, um, Mexican and other South American uh, immigrants or even second and third generation um, uh, families. Uh, if you go to the, the market now, which isn't on Maxwell Street, you will find it very much marked by um, you know, being able to get amazing uh, Mexican food very cheaply, uh, uh, assuming you can speak Spanish um, and know what it is, which I, I did with, with very little Spanish and eating things I didn't know what it was, and it was all great. Um, but that's the kind of basic group, um, sort of, you know, old-fashioned old migration ecology of that space, of moving from Irish to Eastern European Jewish to African-American to um, Central and South American. Yeah, that's great. I mean, the Chicago blues in the book is one of the the best examples, I think, of this kind of multiculturalism that produced these new cultural forms in and around Maxwell Street. Was that sort of multiculturalism unique in Chicago at the time? I mean, not wholly unique, but was it sort of exceptional at that time in Chicago? And could you just reflect a little bit more about some of the cultural productions that came out of that melding and mixing? Um, I don't. I don't think. I mean, I'm not. You know, I know more about Maxwell Street than than than, than anywhere else in, in North America. But I'm, I'm sure it, it wasn't unique. I'm sure you would find similar stories in New York City or um, you know different ones in California, um, Detroit, St. Louis, places like that. I think um, that every one of those will be a, a particular story, though. And I think that Chicago, the movement of particularly of um, African Americans north in the Great um, Migration often followed up the Mississippi. So you know, obviously Mississippi doesn't go to Chicago, but just off to the right and you're in, in Chicago. So there was a kind of line from the deep south up to um, the Midwest that was fairly pronounced. And I think that that brought that kind of musical hybridity and transformation uh, in interesting ways. Um, I was actually just watching the movie Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, which is set in Chicago, which is a very interesting take on early electric blues. If anyone wants to see it, it's a fantastic movie. Um, and, uh, so, so, you know, there's something always specific about these stories, even though they're parts of a general story. I mean, every, every city, big city in the U S has a very similar story in terms of, um, uh, the kinds of migrations that go through it. Um, particularly, you know, the 19th, 20th century migrations. Um, so, you know, what came from that? Well, all kinds of things came from it. I mean, one, the blues is one example, uh, largely within the African American tradition. Um, but you know, there were there's lots of products and things. The zoot suit is alleged to have been um, formulated within uh, on Maxwell Street, although these things are always contested. Uh, a particular kind of suit related to sort of the jazz culture that was again associated with African American um, uh, culture, but you know, also the presence of Jewish tailors, which have you know. Uh, or up until the time the market closed, um, Jewish tailors were a part of that of that mix that was there. Um, uh, the, the the Maxwell Street um, sausage uh, is a you know if you're in Chicago is a famous kind of beef a hot dog. Well, it's not really a hot dog, but a beef sausage um, that is served in a particular way with chilies and other things on it. Um, you could order a Maxwell Street at any kind of hot dog stand in Chicago, and they'll know what that means. And it was a, you know, again, influenced by, you know, kosher uh, food. It was a, it's a beef sausage. 
um, but it's became it's become part of the landscape in the Chicago context and and the general kind of idea of um, that kind of sausage, not always called Maxwell Street, is across uh, across the U.S. Um, there they were just so many ways. I mean, there were, there are interesting individual stories of this kind of mixture. The Nate's Deli, which I mentioned earlier, the, the deli that was in um, the Blues Brothers was owned for a long time by um, is a kosher deli and is obviously owned by uh, Jewish proprietors. And there was a guy that worked there, uh, who's African-American, who actually ends up being um, the star of the story. And when the person that ran it died, it was passed on to uh, the African-American um, person that would have been employed there. I, I'm stumbling a bit because I can't remember which one's Nate. I think Nate is the African-American uh, um, person that ended up owning it. And he carried it on as a kosher deli, even though he wasn't Jewish. Um, and then this becomes, it became a kind of landmark of the, of the, um, of the street. Uh, so, you know, the, it was a place of mixture. And when you get places of mixture, a lot of interesting things happen. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, so with, on the one hand, you had this vibrant, thriving, multicultural market. But at the same time, and from a quite different social position and perspective, that same racial and ethnic diversity was marked by many in the city as foreign, dirty, and dangerous. How did that type of negative imaginary often racially and ethnically coded, how did that emerge and how did some come to view Maxwell Street as sort of quintessentially other in the city? Right. I think, um, you know, the area had uh, always had a mixed um, reception in, uh, in political circles, in media circles, uh, you know, in journalism, um, photography, things like that. Um, so it was never... A sort of the sort of you know there are some parts of cities that become the epitome of dystopia where there's nothing positive to be said about them at least in in sort of mainstream media to use that ill-used phrase um but uh so maxwell street wasn't really that because there were always positive stories as well as negative stories but they were but negative stories began to arise as a site um that was that combined both clear racial um difference uh, for reasons I've already explained, poverty, um, these are all, all, all poor people living around that area, and a kind of aesthetic, because the, it was a flea market, so it wasn't a regular, you know, shopping mall or even high street uh, appearance. It was it was uh, ramshackle. It was um, improvised. It was um, uh, messy. And so although there was a kind of order because there was had its own order within it, it was misunderstood as disorder by people who weren't part of it. So the combination of race, class and um, and uh, kind of appearance, aesthetic aesthetics made it subject to both politicians and various parts of the media and eventually the University of Illinois at Chicago um, portraying a place as a kind of den of thieves, uh, a scar, an ugly place, a place that um, was derelict, uh, was um, the, the word that was began to be used in the 1960s, was blighted. And so uh, both planners, governments and others began to use the word blight to describe the area, uh, which, you know, is, is a term imported from biology um, to suggest a kind of natural process um, of um, decay. That need, and if, if you have a place that is, in need, is is decaying, then it needs a solution. I mean, if there's blight in your in your um, in your 
a potato crop, then you need to, you know, you need um, pesticides, herbicides. And so, um, and so that was the kind of natural way in which, um, well, it's not natural, the pretend natural way in which a place, in this case, Maxwell Street, was described over time. And really, we're talking about going back deep in time, at least since World War II and before that, of people beginning to describe the, the, you know, this as a place that needed fixing. And this fixing could occur, um, you know, often it wasn't usually outright kind of racist language, although it was always racially coded. Um, it was racist, be frank, it was racist language, but it wasn't it wasn't framed as, you know, it, it directly as racist language. It was language that was this is a place that needs fixing. Um, and how can we do that? And you know, over time there were many ways. It could be a market moved indoors to become more like a shopping mall. The um the carts could be regular regularized so they all look the same and have the same color and uh, taxes could be imposed on the market stall holders in particular ways, so obviously the very poor wouldn't be able to use it. Um, there were stories endlessly told about things being stolen, being sold there, um, uh, and then eventually, by the eight, by the nineteen seventies and eighties, there began to be this move to actually get rid of it completely um, and replace it with something that was aesthetically pleasing to. Uh, well, aesthetically pleasing to middle class tastes. And to um, and to the government and to um, landowners who wanted to make a profit from a space. And what's interesting to me, I mean, there are many things interesting about it, but one of the interesting things that I find just um, magical in a bad way is that this description of this place as blighted um, was necessary work to extract value from it. So, mm-hmm. so. You know, from the, in the 1960s, there was the urban renewal projects that Chicago sort of took the lead in across the U.S. And these projects were depended on planners going into a place and saying, this place is so bad, um, sort of what one of my colleagues here, Tom Slater, calls territorial stigma. You, you, you stigmatize a place, you need to make it appear valueless so you can then impose processes within capitalism that are going to increase the value for different people, not the people that live there, but people that can come in and make profit from it. Um, so, so there's a kind of magic that turns valuelessness into value. And I try and trace that in the book, both through urban renewal projects and through the more recent process of tax increment financing, which um, enacts this kind of magical process of, of starting with definition of something as valueless in order to extract value from it. And to be honest, the first time I tried to understand tax increment financing, I maybe the second and third time, I couldn't make any sense of it. It just didn't seem like a nonsense logic. It seemed like what um, was once called voodoo economics. But, uh, you know, it's popular all over the world now. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that leads right into the next thing, because as you say, this is where, or by the late 20th century, this is where the University of Illinois at Chicago my own alma mater prominently enters the story in concert with planners and city officials um, and where this discourse and reputation of slum and blight and urban renewal gets pretty effectively weaponized to threaten Maxwell Street's existence. So can you just tell that story of um, what forces and sort of development schemes ultimately did lead to the decline of the old Maxwell Street? Right. Um, well, there was a lot of forces involved. I mean, um, 
um, you know, the city government was a main force in it. The city government under um, both the first and second Mayor Dailies were very interested in um, extracting value from the city, uh, tax value, um, but also um, uh, increasing, or what, what was put it, want to put it, beautifying Chicago. So there was a kind of aesthetic dimension to it of we want Chicago to be, uh, you know, what they would define as aesthetically pleasing at the same time as there was this kind of in hand with developers, ways of um, particularly places where poor people lived, um, increasing the tax base and increasing and getting money to developers who were able to develop it um, in various ways. And it's a long process. So, so the university became part of this process when, well, originally it was moved from Navy Pier. Um, I can't quite remember when that happened. Um, you probably know that better than I do. do you I, I want to say it was in the 60s. I think it was in the 60s, yeah. So, so the University of Illinois Chicago used to be on Navy Pier and, and was moved, and they had the Circle Campus, which is where this is, um, to an area that was largely at the time, I mean, this was um, not quite where Maxwell Street was. It was adjacent to, and it was largely poorer Italian people uh, at that time, I think, uh, or not Italian people, were people of Italian origin. And... Um, and there was protests about that too. I mean, um, uh, um, Pilsen, I think, is the name, isn't it? The name of the area. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, um, so there were a set of protests around that. That's another story entirely. But so, first of all, the university was moved into a place it wasn't that wasn't there before. Uh, the university was constructed, given that it was the 1960s, as a um, a kind of defensive. Uh, you know, a fortress like anyone's seen it. It has what literally looked like places to fire arrows out of as windows. Um, you know, and it was surrounded by relatively impoverished populations. Um, and so so that was right next to where Maxwell Street was. And at the time, Maxwell Street was still there. And, um, you know, it was, uh, and, and that continued for a while. Eventually, the university and the city government got together uh, to argue that the university could be expanded into the area um, where Maxwell Street is, um, which was kind of between where the university is and the lake. I mean, there's a, quite a long distance there, but, but it was the next space along. And, um, and the, you know, the way that the university described its need was to develop accommodation and playing fields and parking spaces, parking lots, and, you know, and, and on the basis of it being a state university, that attracted diverse student populations. So diversity was, you know, ironically one of the arguments for this. You know, it wasn't the University of Chicago, it wasn't a private institution, it was doing a good service for, and I'm sure that, that there's a lot of that that's true, by the way. I'm sure that the, the University of Chicago does serve a diverse population in interesting ways. Um, but, but they got together to say, well, there's this area next door that, you know, is a bit of an eyesore, the, the market, that by the 1960s and 70s was largely African-American, and um and it spilled out it wasn't on one street it was on blocks around maxwell street and it was and if you know if you saw pictures of it you know it isn't a kind of exotic uh you know french fruit flea market you can wander around on a romantic sunday afternoon it was spilling out everywhere and it was things like piles of used automobile tires and hubcaps and um and you know bric-a-brac and junk um what you might call junk it was still very popular. On a Sunday, you still get hundreds of thousands of people going to it. Um, and so the, 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 the university started to use alongside the, the city government 
these aesthetic arguments to say that you know this this no one's looking after this space the university can look after it and make it look nice so we want to expand into it and um and use various kinds of um, powers we might have to do that and basically the the you know, the short story is that the city government enabled the university, both obviously um, public institutions, to um, to uh, compulsory purchase the land um, um, uh, around Maxwell Street, one one building a building at a time essentially, and they would often buy buildings and then leave them. So there was this process of buying a building and then doing nothing to it, and then at some point they maybe ten years later saying, look, it's 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 blighted. Because they hadn't spent any money on it, it was destined to be blighted, and once it was blighted, it could be knocked down. So, so they started to erase the landscape, and there was a constant set of newspaper stories about, you know, this is a place where thieves sell their sell their wares. This is a place that doesn't look good. It's not good for Chicago. It's not Chicago's new sort of image, um, where where the, the mayor was arguing that like spaces should be. Um, the, the phrase was picket fences and potted plants with and cast iron particularly the wrought iron fences and potted and potted plants would be the way in which Chicago would become beautiful and um, and Maxwell Street was the antithesis of that so so there were constant arguments there were reports done report after report uh, to try and um, designate the area in particular ways it became an enterprise zone you know all these different ways of, of making a space meaningful were used by the city government to allow certain kinds of activities to happen, like demolition, um, like compulsory purchase orders, um, like, um, uh, you know, like eventually tax increment financing. So, so the space got defined in all these interesting ways. I mean, interesting academically, even but sad for most, most people that live there or work there. And eventually, over time, possibly, you know, I'd say about 30 years from when the university arrived to when the, when the market closed, um, uh, you know, the, the, the market was eventually, they found a space for it um, about four blocks away, five blocks away, but big blocks and across a highway. And it's now in the middle of, well, it's been moved twice since then, but it's in the middle of box stores. It's in the middle of like Kmart's and, um, you know, it's, there's no there's no city there. It's just where people go and park. So um, so that's that story. So basically in cahoots, I mean, the, the, the media were part of it too. Planners were part of it. Um, economists were part of it. Uh, some some academics were part of it. They were all working together to um, to erase the market, to get the market out of there, and then knock buildings down and replace it with what we now refer to as um, neo traditional urban planning or the, the so called village, the university village, which mm-hmm. has a uniform aesthetic that people imagine looks something like Italy but doesn't. Yeah, and one of your arguments in the book is that all of those contestations over Maxwell Street's fate reflect ultimately sort of divergent sets of values and different ways of sensing place. And part of this podcast channel, Mobilities and Methods, is devoted to methods. And in part one of the book, you lay out some of the methodological strategies and writing strategies that you employ to capture the complexity of such a place. So you talk about montage, nonlinear writing, parataxis, commonplacing, topopoetics. Um, you kind of lay out this toolkit. I wonder if you could just reflect a little bit on these different strategies and how you found them useful in, in Maxwell Street, the book. 
Yeah, I mean, it was important to me to, um, I think when I first started writing it, it was fairly conventional chapters. I think there was a chapter called Planning Maxwell Street and a chapter called Writing Maxwell Street and things like that. And it, it, it just started to look a bit like anything else I might have written. And given that I'd been working in creative writing in, in other parts of my life, I just started to bring these things together. And I was reading a number of texts that had a big influence on me. Um, first of all, Walter Benjamin, which I've been reading for a long time, The Arcade Project. And I know he never intended to write it like it's been published, but uh, the way The Arcade Project appears is, is these fragments and the way that um, Benjamin was also theorizing fragments as he was writing it. Uh, like a constant source of um, information. I could almost always find a Benjamin quote that matched something I was seeing in Maxwell Street. So so the Arcade Project was the sort of first big um, uh, sort of stylistic, uh, str strategic style writing method book that made me think about that. But I was also reading, you know, things outside of normal academic context. So what, what in poetry is referred to as hybrid text, um, particularly the work, work of people like Claudia Rankin and, and Maggie Nelson, who play around with academic conventions, but they're writing something close to poetry. So in in, um, in Maggie Nelson's book, Argonauts, she has like side notes, uh, which instead of footnotes, she has side notes as references. And they're not full references like you might have in academia. They're just names, like who, who it is that she's, she's been inspired by at that particular time. And also, as I mentioned, William Lee's T. Moon used this commonplacing technique, which is an old 19th century thing that many gentlemen used to do in the 19th century, is write down, people still do this, just write down quotes that interest them in a book. And they, they form this kind of montage themselves. So I, I thought I'd go back and start doing this because it reflected the it reflected the place. The place looked like a montage. You know, it was it came to me like a montage. I was thinking about the process in, by which archivists, archival researchers, which is what most of this is based on. There's a little bit of ethnography, mostly it's archives. Um, you know, we, we, what do we do? I mean, there's very little reflective work on what we do when we, when we do archival research. And so I know what I do. So I go in to an archive, um, or nowadays more online, I've experienced it on my screen, but I went to lots of archives to do this research. And we find things, and we and there is no kind of science to it. We find things that are interesting. It's like, oh, this is interesting. I'll write about this. I mean, this is how I do it anyway. It's a confessional moment. There's, there's no, there's no, I can't de delineate a process to anyone to how I do my research. I go places, I find something interesting, and I think this is interesting enough to be interesting, and that's all I need to know. So, so I then I write it, or I photocopy it, or I scan it, or I take a photograph of it, or whatever technique I'm using. And it becomes part of my archive for how I'm going to construct a book. What writers tend to do is they tend to erase that process in writing so that it all looks kind of effortless and um, and you know immaculately planned and uh, and comprehensive. Um, you know, certainly, people do use archival research most of the time. So I wanted to sort of the way I think about it is a bit like the Pompidou Center. The Pompidou Center, you know, the art, the architects decided to reveal the infrastructure on the outside so it's not hidden in the walls anymore and invisible. So there's something about revealing the infrastructure of the process. What, what, what I would normally do writing a chapter is probably have a series of archival nuggets, a series of texts I've, re I've read that have inspired me and then my own thinking. And I would blend them so they become a seamless text. And instead I just kept them separate in different par those three elements in different paragraphs along with um, uh, images 
which are, which are very important in the book. And 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 have the space of the page start to, which is the top poetic top poetic part, look a bit like what I'm doing. So the so all the paragraphs are separated. Uh, they leap. They don't leap madly, but they do leap quite quickly from one thing to another. A lot of the normal signposting has disappeared. I have subtitles in the sidebar rather than breaking up what I'm doing. I just put little things in the side, the, the margin, just to say this is what I'm interested in now is lists, or this is what I'm interested in now is value or some theme, and sometimes they're repeated. Um, and so I wanted to, the book to, the writing process and the book to match what the street was like. And so uh, parataxis is simply a fancy way of saying listing, and it's a long tradition in um, uh, in literature. I mean, it goes, you know, it's in early English poetry, um, Greek, uh, poet, Greek epic poems, the Bible, all of these have parataxis as a part of what they do, a list, a, an incessant listing. Um, uh, you know, montage is more, maybe more, more modern and more fancy, but it's, it's got the juxtaposition element and how, how juxtaposition works. And commonplacing this idea, idea of taking lots of words from other people. There's a lot of quotes in the book. I mean, it's I, I don't know what percentage, but it's a lot. Of it is just this quote is inspiring me. Just put it in, and see how it works next to this bit of me and this bit of the archive. So, so that I think of as a kind of methodology now. I mean, it isn't. You know, I, I've always disliked the idea that writing is a kind of end product of a research process. Um, you know, there's a tradition of I'm going to read, I'm going to do the research, and I'm going to write. They're all together for me, and writing has always been part of that. So, um, writing is how I think and how I do research. So, it's all one. Mm. So, turning now a little bit more to the theoretical side of the book, yeah. much of your work in the last 15 years, say, as listeners may know, has been devoted to mobilities thinking and the new mobilities turn, new mobilities paradigm. Even if, in some ways, Maxwell Street returns to a more, say, conventional terrain within human within human geography. Um, it's still inflected throughout with a mobilities and assemblage perspective. So, how did these more recent developments in social and geographical theory inform your analysis and presentation of Maxwell Street? Yeah, I mean, I think um, well, assemblage is one term. I mean, I really there's a lot of work in assemblage theory that I've really enjoyed and makes sense to me. Um, particularly Manuel Zalanda, uh, who I think expresses it clearly and in very pleasingly geographical ways. So, and you know, a lot of colleagues in geography like Ben Anderson and, um, uh, and Colin McFarlane and others have used assemblage in, in ways that, that make sense to me. And, and they, they also make sense as it's part of lineage. You know, I think we have a, uh, an overvaluation of the new sometimes in our discipline as in many disciplines. And you know, you could take the word assemblage and apply it to older ways of doing geography. They didn't have that language, but they, they were kind of doing that in an interesting way. Um, so, so I like to see it as a continuity as well. Um, the other thing, I, I guess, that um, I was interested in doing, you know, combining the mobility and place interests. You know, I do; they, those are my big things. So I switch between them all the time, and they're related to each other. Is sort of bringing together sets of arguments that are often held to be hostile to each other so you know maybe i'm too easygoing <laughs> on um on theoretical sort of groupings or niches and i can always almost always see value in in things coming together and being used used together rather than one or the other and one of the things that sort of intrigued me over time 
has been the relationship between particularly political geographers who are interested in territoriality, talking about territorial spatialities of regions, um, and the kind of more Doreen Massey um, take on place and um, horizontal flows. So I wanted to try and construct this book as a kind of coming together of the verticality of time, basically. Like there is a place that has a history that isn't hasn't been erased, and the horizontal plane of movement, of mobility. This book is all about things, people, objects, ideas, uh, policies moving from one place to another and passing through Maxwell Street and leaving their imprint on it. And so um, so I wanted to get past that kind of an, an impasse, I think, of is place territorial or is it this sort of progressive fluid thing? Um, clearly, it's both. And, and, and the, uh, the fluid, the fluidities make a place have these particular attributes which relate to the next point in time. So in the end, in the final chapter, there's quite a long time spent thinking about what, what Martin Jones calls phase space or, um, you know, temporalities. Like there's something that about what is in a place that affects what happens next in a place. And so there is the, always that vertical, I mean, John Berger put this beautifully, this kind of vertical history, as well as this horizontal travel, uh, this horizontal spatiality. And, um, and I wanted to bring those together in the way I was both writing about and theorizing plays, because I love both of those, you know, aspects of work. I mean, um, I think... Uh, if, I, if I if I'm not mistaken, Ben, you had a few reservations about my my use of of, of Doreen Massey's work in this book, um, but that kind of surprises me because he's one of the main influences on it. <laughs> and uh, uh, no, I, yeah, no, I I don't recall that. I mean, it's been about a year since I wrote that review, but yeah, no, I mean, my, as I recall, I reviewed all that positively, but um, it could be a, a a mismatch of. Oh, I think the reservation was I hadn't used it enough, not that I hadn't used it properly. Oh, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, so maybe you're on yeah. that side of the fence, as it were. But I think, I think that, um, I think that, that I was trying to do, to to use that work and bring it to bring sort of mobility stuff because again, Dory Massey is very influential in thinking about what she called power geometries, which influences a lot of my work on mobility. And so they all come together. And how do they come together in one place? These are not the questions that were being asked by, um, you know, regional monograph writers in the 1950s. But now we've gone through all those kind of theoretical turns and inspiration, we have the capacity to rewrite place, no, you know, thinking about those things. And that's definitely what I was trying to do, uh, writing about Maxwell Street and what I was trying to bring together in that final chapter, which is about theory, um, was, you know, try and think about a way of approaching place that doesn't choose between a kind of fluid version and a static version, but to think about how the static and the fluid are always in counterpoint and related to each other. Mm -hmm. So at the end of part two, you write, quote, these days you're unlikely to be struck by any particular smells at the intersection of Halstead and Maxwell. The sounds are similarly unremarkable. There are no live chickens for sale and nobody wears chickens on their head. The transplanted facades that, that line the 700 block of Maxwell Street are attractive enough, cleaned, restored, and moved, unquote. So can you describe Maxwell Street as it exists today, um, sort of as this upscale appendage of a major university campus? What would you see at Halstead and Maxwell today? Yeah, so so Halstead and Maxwell is the kind of epicenter of the book. That's where, you know, there are the most photographs of, and it keeps coming up. It's wonderful 
when you start thinking about archives, how often it comes up. I mean, like, there's like a description in a novel. It comes up all the time, Halstead and Maxwell. And so that's become the epicenter of the whole thing. And so that's where I spent time um, sitting in, a, in a, well, at the time it was called Caribou Coffee. I don't know if it's Caribou Coffee anymore because change, things change a lot. But it was on one of the corners and looking out um, across this intersection and thinking about what all these other people had seen or, or had written about or photographed uh, at that intersection. And it is um, a set of, you know, um, aesthetically coded stone and brickwork, um, different colours, uh, limestone used in particular ways. It has a, you know, it's been engineered to have an aesthetic uniformity to it um, in general, but there is this one side, one, one or two sides of one block. So Maxwell Street, all that's left really is two blocks because it gets interrupted by uh, playing fields. And then it gets interrupted by um, the Dan Ryan Expressway. So there's really that intersection. You can walk one block in each direction on Maxwell Street. And if you're um, coming out from downtown and you turn left, you see these um, facades, which are the result of attempts by activists to save Maxwell Street that turned into a kind of preservation moment. And all they man what they managed to do, which isn't insignificant, by the way, I don't want to diminish what they did because they did amazing things, but they, they saved, I think it's 13 facades, um, and they were moved and put next to each other that, would, that people decided were aesthetically interesting. So it's now it has this kind of, you know, to use the uh, sort of negative terminology of disnification. It's, it's like a moved things from where they originally were. And you can easily describe it as inauthentic, as, um, you know, a facade. I mean, that word is interesting in itself, right? They are facades and it is a facade. And you would see, you know, pretty well-dressed people, students, um, the, the, the flats around cost hundreds of thousands of dollars, so it's not really for poor people. Um, uh, there are serious student accommodations, so you do see students. Um, and, uh, you know, it's still it's still reasonably multicultural, but nowhere near as um, diverse as it once was, and certainly more white than it once was. Um, and it's clean and tidy. Uh, there's sort of, um, you know, um, lampposts made to look old and, and uh, street furniture. There's bronze statues of the past. There's bronze statues of markets, tool holders and blues players. There's plaques telling you that this is once an amazing place. Um, and it's all quite ironic. I mean, there are pictures of the market on walls inside buildings. So if you walk down the other side of Maxwell Street, you can look in a, I think it's a hall of residence, and there's a, there's a mural of a picture of the old Maxwell Street right inside the window. So you can see the old intersection right next to the new intersection. Um, uh, you know, it's clean and tidy. There are fast food joints um, and there's a park parking lots behind the facade is a parking lot, multi-story parking lot. So you can park your car there. Um, and then the downstairs have little, usually fast food restaurants or the kind of places people want to go um, who are around the college. Um, and this spreads out from Maxwell Street. I mean, this kind of landscape, the, the university village is quite extensive. Um, you know, I because I was doing this research for a long time, I saw some of it being built. I saw billboards when I first went that were advertising the future. And there was always these pictures of, you know, multi-racial couples, um, you know, suggesting it was inclusivity, but also noting that it's $400,000 to buy somewhere or 200. Well, that time it was probably 250. I think it's probably 400 now. Um, you know, it's, 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 been, it's been cleaned and changed and transformed. I think what I want to avoid, at least a little bit, 
is any notion that there's that, that some reason this is inauthentic. I mentioned that word earlier. I mentioned the word Disneyfied, because even if they, they, there's some elements of truth to that, it's still where people live. You know, I still saw people with their kids. Um, people would play around on the bronze statues. Um, you know, it's their lives aren't inauthentic. Uh, places always change. They're not stuck, st being stuck in time is not a good place to be. And Maxwell Street always changed as a market. That was one of the interesting things about it. And you can't preserve change very easily. Uh, although, you know, some geographers are writing about that in interesting ways now, particularly Caitlin de Sylvie in her more, her more recent book. You know, how do you think about change in relation to heritage and preservation and, and what you want from the past is a kind of uh, thing to think about at the end of the book. Um, so although I find, you know, I find the intersection as a visitor unremarkable, there would be no particular reason to go there as a visitor. It's probably a reasonably nice place to live. I mean, I, I imagine it is a nice place to live. You know, downtown's just down the road. If I, if I wanted to live in Chicago, I don't imagine there'd be anything wrong with it. Yeah. So I yeah, no, absolutely. That seems like a good place to start wrapping up. Um, if you'll permit me just a couple more questions. Sure. Before we close out, I do want to mention that while Maxwell Street is your newest academic book, um, even more recently, you've released Plastiglomerate, which is your third poetry collection published by Penned in the Margins. Could you say something about that project? And in addition to just encouraging listeners to check out that side of your work as well, I wondered how you see your poetry relating to your geographical scholarship. Uh, to what extent does it overlap or diverge from your more traditional scholarship? Um, well, it started as something very different. It was, it was, you know, my wife said it's my my version of a red Porsche. It was my midlife crisis, was <laughs> a healthier one. So, um, so. So I'd written poetry ever since I was a grad school in, in Madison. Uh, you know, I, I was part of various kind of write-on radical collectives who would spring on people in laundromats and read poems to them. Um, uh, really exciting and interesting people, actually. Um, and, and I continued to write as a sort of private endeavor all the way through my career, but not very often, just a few things a year. And then in 2008, I just saw an ad for the, 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 the independent publisher, Faber and Faber, um, were launching this new poetry school called Becoming a Poet. And I thought, well, I'll give it a go. And I sent them a portfolio thinking there's no way I'll ever get on. But, um, I did. So there were like 12 of us. And we took this class where the great and good of British poetry visited us. And we had a good experience. I learned about the craft of thinking about writing at the level of the individual word and the individual line, which is different from what we do in academia, if we ever spend time thinking about writing, which unfortunately we don't spend enough time doing. Um, and, and, you know, it gradually became apparent that the things I wrote about weren't that dissimilar to what I wrote about in academic work. Uh, you know, place, displacement and mobility, things out of place constantly of interest to me. And so, um, and so the three collections I've written are all on along those lines in one way or another. Um, Pastiglomera is more of a, you know, could be classed as eco-poetry, so it engages more with the Anthropocene. And particularly the aspect of uh, plastic pollution, you know, the, the, the idea of a rock. You know, I think I, just, I read a description of a rock found on a beach in Hawaii with these blue bits of, bits of plastic in. And I thought about what those bits of plastic could be and the individual stories that they told of, you know, plastic that was left on a beach and then 
subjected to fire by usually by either a campfire or in Hawaii's case by magma sometimes lava lava not magma get my geology right and um and and, and fuse and form these rocks that have plastic in them we know, you know now plastics everywhere it's inside the cells of of of, of shellfish it's in snow on the top of Everest it's everywhere so I was trying to think about you know that sort of displacement and, and way in which the place is being um being i mean it is being polluted but i'm thinking of something else it's becoming this kind of hybrid thing of, of uh, our impact on it and and what we often call the natural world and so the, the collection is a series of reflections mostly reflections on those aspects of our lives of um of of what it's like to live in a world in which plastic is everywhere. I mean, not, not that every poem is about plastic, but um, but it is mostly about environmental degradation and our living in the world and how we might live in it in the future. And that's certainly, you know, then reflected back on, on my academic work. And that's what happened with Maxwell Street is once I started thinking about writing differently, it sort of allowed me a license to write differently. And I do realize that there's a privilege that comes with seniority and being, you know, not needing to worry about tenure and all those kinds of things that allows you to do that. And certainly, again, I, I should definitely mention Anna Singh's book, The Mushroom at the End of the World. You know, as an academic anthropologist who spent a whole life doing anthropology and towards the end of her career, does this amazing, you know, fragmented text, which is just so inspiring when I was writing Maxwell Street. I think I encountered it towards the end, but it was still massively inspiring. Yeah, that's great. Thanks. Um... So just to finish up, what new research are you currently working on? What are you hoping to explore more moving forward? Uh, I always have several things on the boil. So um, so I have, uh, first of all, I've got to do a second edition of my textbook, Geographic Thought. So I'm trying to think, figure out ways to decolonize my own textbook. Um, then um, research-wise, I have a, a project on poetry and, and place. So I've been, you can find various things by me in various places about individual poets and place. And I'm trying to collect a series of 10 or however many it takes poet, poets and write about how they engage with place, not, not individual place, but again, the idea of place, how, they, how their poetry is itself forming place by it being written. Um, so that's exciting to me. I'm about halfway through that. Um, and then I'm going to, I started to work on um, a follow-up to On the Move, which was the book about mobility in 2006. So after that, I wrote a paper called the, uh, Towards the Politics of Mobility in 2010 that um, has received a lot of attention and been cited very widely. And I just thought I'd try and make that into a book-length project because it's neatly divided into themes like speed and velocity and friction. And so there's a, there's a book project that I'm, I call at the moment The Citizen and the Vagabond um, on the politics of mobility. And, and so that's on, on the way. And then the, the distant project is really, um, I'm really interested in the idea of the local and localisms, and particularly how they transcend political difference in the current moment. How we see anarchists and mutual aid projects, we see calls for local government to deal with the vaccination, vaccination and COVID responses. We see, um, um, you know, uh, the far right Trumpism expounding the value of the local and say so what is it about this idea that transcends politics that brings these unlikely people not they don't get brought together but at least conceptually they do 
And so I started to sketch notes on a project on that. That's probably be my final thing before I retire one day, if I keep taking 10 years to write books. <laughs> well, we hope when any and all of that does show up in book form, you'll uh, take time again to come back on the podcast and share your insights again. Until then, I, I really appreciate you coming on um, to share your work and your ideas about Maxwell Street. So thank you again, Tim Cresswell, for taking the time. Thank you for taking the time. Maxwell Street, Writing and Thinking Place was published in 2019 by the University of Chicago Press. I'm Benjamin Linder, and this discussion was brought to you by the New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Thank you for listening.